We're in the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. We have been in chapter 6 for a couple of weeks, and we'll be there for a couple of more weeks. It's just a big chapter is what it is. And the section that we have this morning is a lengthy dialogue between Jews and Galilee and the Lord Jesus. We'll look at it in just a minute. I already know it is impossible for us to get through all of this conversation this morning, so we will take it to lunchtime. We will not go past lunch because I know that you're going to check out anyway. and So we won't take it past it, but we'll take it as far as we can. And then in two weeks, we'll come back and we'll try to finish it. But I want you to pick the story up in John 6 and verse number 22. The Bible says the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save that one wherein his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Albeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, and after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples They also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth and the everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who has, whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Now now just think for just a minute. If you can think back to yesterday. To what had happened yesterday in this chapter. And the day after. They had the audacity to say, show us a sign. Verse 31, our fathers did eat a manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. I'll stop reading right there, but I think that we'll try to cover more verses than that. When you read... A story, you know that all of the incidents, all of the twists and turns are all connected somehow to weave one narrative. You don't read all of the happenings as isolated incidents, but somehow they're going to come together in the end to tell one story. The writer may take you from scene to scene, from happening to happening, even from past to future, but there is one story, there is one event that he really wants to put into your mind. The Gospel of John is a narrative. It is not a 
doctrinal discourse, though there is a lot of doctrine in it, and we'll talk about that this morning. But it is a story. There are large gaps in the story because John is so selective as to which parts of the larger story that he wants to tell. But there is a continuous flow to the narrative. He didn't just pick out a few miracles and a few parables and just put them all together, but he began with an end in mind. He is going somewhere all the way from start to finish. And so when you study the Gospel of John or any narrative, you, you've got to study it in sequence. You, you have to see the flow or it just becomes isolated incidents to you and you miss the message of the book. If you were to back up to chapter 5 several weeks or months ago when we were there, in chapter 5, there's the miracle in Jerusalem of healing the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. Very unusual miracle. And John's the only gospel writer that talks about that miracle. It takes place in Jerusalem where all of the religious elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes, that's where all, they all reside in Jerusalem. They become offended because this impotent man takes up his bed and, and he walks through the temple on the Sabbath day and it violates one of their Sabbath rules that they have made up and attached to the Sabbath law. And so what happens in chapter 5 is you have a confrontation between the religious elites and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the conversation that ensues, and it's a very long conversation, Jesus makes the boldest claims yet as to who he is and his identity with the Father. And he says, I am one with the Father. And the Jews find that not only offensive, but they find it blasphemous. And that miracle and, and that, that conversation is important because it is in that setting that the Jews in Jerusalem, catch that, the Jews in Jerusalem reject the claims of Christ and begin to plot his death. If you just look back one page, chapter 5 and verse number 16, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So the rejection of the Jews in Jerusalem is complete at this point. Now we come to chapter number 6. Jesus is now back in Galilee, the north country. This 18-month period of the greater Galilean ministry where he performs hundreds of miracles. His popularity reaches an all-time high. And the Jews in Galilee, they're different, uh, a different breed because they're receptive of him. There's, there's no opposition of any kind during this time. His, his ministry is mostly healing and miracles and preaching and what John does is he tells us the first miracle and the last miracle that he performs in Galilee. And they're kind of like bookends to this part of his ministry. In chapter 4, there's the healing of the nobleman's son. And now there is the feeding of the 5,000. And this miracle, it's the greatest miracle in the gospel that, that we read of in John chapter 6. But, but it doesn't produce faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, what it does is it prompts the people to try to force him to become king. We saw that last week. We're going to force him to be our king. We're going to force him to do what we want him to do. But by the end of the chapter, every man who experienced that great miracle and was fed with the 5,000, every one of them has turned away and decided that we are not 
going to follow Jesus after all. The rejection by the Jews in Jerusalem is hostile. The rejection by the Jews in Galilee is just walking away. It's unbelief. We simply don't want to follow Him. So chapter 6 is a pivotal point in the ministry of Christ. Catch this. The rejection by the Jews in Jerusalem is complete. Chapter 5. The rejection by the Jews in Galilee is complete. Chapter number 6. For the greater part of two years, the Lord and His disciples have walked all over Galilee. They have performed hundreds of miracles. In Matthew chapter 10, you read about how Jesus sent His disciples out in teams of two by two to preach the kingdom of God. And He gave them the power to perform miracles. And the popularity of Jesus reaches an all-time high. So high that Herod tries to seek an audience with Him at this time. And Jesus refuses to meet with Him. Why would Herod refuse to meet with him? By the way, I'll just throw this out to you. The reason why Herod refused to meet with him is because God had sent him a messenger named John the Baptist and Herod treated him and had his head cut off. Now he wants to hear from God. He has silenced the voice of God. God's not talking to him anymore. Herod is so afraid that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Jesus and his disciples, everywhere they go, they are followed by large crowds. And so Jesus tries to get away somewhere to rest for a little bit. And they go out to the plain somewhere near Bethsaida. But then 5,000 people show up uninvited. What do you do when 5,000 people show up at your house uninvited and they're staying for dinner? Well, that's what happens. Well, I don't know what I would do, but Jesus decided to feed them. You had the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And then that evening, Jesus goes up into a mountain to pray, puts his disciples in a boat to go across the sea. The storm comes up. He comes walking on the water. The next day, the crowd comes back, and they discover that Jesus and the disciples are gone, and they can't discover how that they have left. We know where Jesus is at because the Bible says in verse 51 that he is in Capernaum. Somehow word gets to the crowd that that's where he's at. Capernaum is about six miles away. And so they walk or they, they, they take a ship across the, 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 the Sea of Galilee and, and they get to Capernaum. And when they get to Capernaum, this is where we pick up the story in verse number 24. This is the continuous flow. And what's going to happen in verse 24, all the way down to the end of the chapter, there's going to be a dialogue back and forth between the Lord and this, this, this multitude, and it's going to turn to a conversation about bread. And it's a very long conversation, and there's no way, there's no way that we can tackle it all this morning. Let me give you the outline quickly. If you want to just write it down so you can kind of outline it, and then I'll take it as far as I can. But in verse 25 to verse number 27, there is a confrontation. There's a confrontation. We'll talk about that. Then in verse 28 to verse number 40, there's a conversation. You have a confrontation, you have a conversation. Then in verse 41 through verse 42, there is confusion. There's confusion. In verse 43 through verse 51, there is clarification. And in verse 52 through verse 58, there is communion. Now that's the outline. Now here's what I want to do this morning. I want to start at the beginning. and I just want us to walk through it just by verse by verse. We'll see how far that we can get into it, all right? I want you to notice, first of all, there is a confrontation. Look at verse number 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou 
hither. The scene is moved to the day after the multitude feeding the 5,000. We are now set in Capernaum. Many of those who had witnessed the miracle of the 5,000 have come to Capernaum, which is about six miles away. And when they find Jesus in Capernaum, they ask him what I think is a very odd question. Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And it just strikes me as a bad question. Because what does it matter how you got here or how long you've been here? What does that really even matter? And it's not a trick question. They're not trying to trip him up like the Jews in Jerusalem would do, trying to catch him in some, some kind of lie or, or conflict with Moses. Or one of the, it's not that at all. It's just, it's just, it's just where, where did they come up with it? And I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if we ask God questions that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of life. Rabbi, when came us that? And it's not just me that thinks it's odd. I think that Jesus thought it's odd because he doesn't even address it. He doesn't even acknowledge the question. That's what you do with stupid questions. You, you, just, you just ignore it. They, they don't know how he has gotten to Capernaum so quickly. There were no boats available. And, and, and the night before, there had been a storm on the sea. And, since it's, and, and here's the thing. Since they don't know how he got there, then he didn't, they don't know about walking on the water. Because that's how he got there, right? Walked on the water, got in the ship, and immediately the ship was on the other side. So since they don't know, this would be a wonderful place for Jesus to say, well, since you ask, I'll tell you how I got here. Big storm last night. I was kind of choppy. I need to get over here. So I just walked across the sea, just walked on the water, walked, walked, just walked right across the sea, and then I just, just made the waves calm down. But Jesus never mentions it. He never tells them how he got there. And the reason why is because he knew that they wanted him to be their king for their own political purposes. They are ready to coronate him, but not follow him spiritually and to follow his demands. His popularity is high, and the people claim that they want to coronate him as the king, but Jesus is getting ready to rebuke them for having the wrong motives. So he doesn't tell them how he got there. This question, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? But notice what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So he's going to tell them that, that you are not here just because of what you saw in the miracles. They saw the miracles, but they failed to see in the miracles what they needed to see. Does not John tell us that these miracles are signs pointing to the Messiah? But they didn't see that. They didn't see the spiritual behind the physical. So here's what Jesus says. You're not following me because you saw the signs and they pointed to you. They told you that I am the Messiah, that I am the Lord. You are here because I met a physical need and you want me to meet that physical need again. You want me to fulfill your desires, to meet your needs and to give you free food. That's the only reason that you're here. You are wanting to follow me for what you think you can get out of me you are not concerned with what's in your heart. 
He says in verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. You are working so hard at getting food. You came all the way over here to Capernaum, hoping that I would perform another miracle of bread. But you ought to labor that hard for something that's more important than physical bread. He's not telling them to not labor for bread, but he's pointing out how temporal everything that we labor for actually is. They were just fed yesterday. And today, they need more of it. By the way, if you live by miracles, no matter how great today's miracle is, you're going to need another one tomorrow. Now, when Jesus says, labor not for the meat which perishes, he's not saying be a couch potato and don't work for your food. We, we know that. He's not advocating laziness. But here's what he's saying. If your entire life, if your entire life consists of just laboring for meat which perishes, then you're going to miss out on something that's more important than food. What, what if you and I put as much time and energy and effort and thought in seeking God and the things of God as we do trying to meet our temporal needs? Huh? Now, 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 now last Sunday, all of my ministers were out. All of them were gone, cooking fish and doing whatever. I had no ameners last Sunday. But you back in here this morning, so you got to help me just a little bit, all right? We spend so much time and so much energy and so much effort in filling our bellies. We ought to spend as much time and energy and effort in filling our hearts with worship. Why, why are we so invested in? Why are we so interested in things that are not going to last? That's what he's saying. Take, take food for example. Now, now you can look at me and tell me, I, I, I like to eat. You can tell that. And I, I enjoy fine food. And my wife and I, we go out to eat on occasion. I suppose that our favorite restaurant in the area would be Grand Marlin in Pensacola Beach. Now, now the problem with Grand Marlin is that it's more expensive than what it's worth. So we don't go very often. Just special occasions. Anniversary... Maybe once or twice a year, if I can think of an excuse to take somebody else out, I don't know. We had a gift card to Grand Marlins, and, and, and it took us a month to find an evening free in order to go. So last week, my wife and I, just me and her, no kids, no nobody, just me and the kids, me and the wife, we went to Grand Marlin. And I love Grand Marlin. I don't, I don't like raw oysters. I don't, I don't care for raw oysters. I love oyster Rockefellers. Oyster Rockefellers, baked oysters, a little spinach and Parmesan cheese and crusted... Oh, they're wonderful. So, so we always have oyster rocket fellows there. And I love their crusty parmesan grouper. It's, 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 it's to die for. And, and then when you're Grand Marlin, you got to get their dessert. The, 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 the praline, the praline um, basket with the ice cream and the berries and all of that. And, 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 and we split it. We split it. And we almost fight over it. But, but we don't. We don't. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, by the time you walk out of there, you are stuffed to the gills. You don't even, here's how full you are. You don't even want to stop by Krispy Kreme <laughs> on the way home. 
when you pass by Krispy Kreme, you know you're full. You're full. I, I walk out of there so full. I think I'm not going to eat for three days. Do you know the next morning I woke up looking for breakfast? Huh? Yeah, wanting to eat again. I don't care how good the food is. I don't care how nice the restaurant. You're going to want another meal as soon as that one is over. And isn't that how life is? You get a raise, you're going to want another one. You get a promotion, it's not high enough. You want, you get a toy, you're going to want to buy another one next year. If you have the iPhone 8 or 9 or whatever number it is, then you want the next one when it comes out. Am I not right? Because it does three things that the old one don't do. If you go to work tomorrow and your only motivation is to put food on the table and pay the bills and save for retirement so that you can live on easy street, Jesus says that is poor motivation. You have to do those things. You have to pay the bills and you have to feed the kids and you have to replace the car. But I want you to know there is more to life than that. And do you see, do you see people, they've come to the sea, across the Sea of Galilee and all they want is for more food. They are, they are laboring for meat which perishes as good as it was yesterday. It is not enough. They have no interest in Jesus except for what we can get out of Jesus. They're not hostile like the Jews in Jerusalem, but they're disinterested in Him. There is no love. There is no worship. There is no faith in the Messiah. And here's the true tragedy of their heart. Jesus would give them something better than bread if they'd just ask. He'd give them everlasting life. That's a whole lot better than the miracle on the plains if they would just ask. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how many people come to Jesus and they ask Him for something that is so little when Jesus wants to give them something so more. Why would you come for just another meal or another trinket? Wouldn't you like to have meat which endures unto everlasting life? That's what He's offering. So we have a confrontation. Well, this opens up into a conversation in verse 28. Here's what they say. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? He isn't just like a man to want to contribute to his own salvation. And here's what they've done. They have latched on to the word labor in the previous verse. And they asked Jesus, What shall we do? What should we do that we might do the works of God? You know what that sounds like? That sounds like that young ruler, good master, what shall I do? What good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? You know, that sounds like that Philippian jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They think that everlasting life is by something that they must do. And the reason why they think that is because Judaism has been a religion for years of do and do and do and do more. And by the way, mark this down. Any religion that tells you that salvation is by doing will also tell you that you've never done enough. You can't do enough by religion. There is no, there is no religion of works that says do and do and do. And if you'll do, you are 100% absolutely guaranteed to go to heaven when you die. There is no religion of works that says that. 
No, one religion would tell you that you got to go through purgatory first. Another religion would tell you that after you're dead, you're going to need somebody to pray you out of hell. Another religion is going to tell you that you're saved today. Oops, you lost it. Hope that you get it back again. You better pray that you die on one of the days you got it and not one of the days that you lost it. Another religion is going to tell you that you go to heaven if you're one of the lucky 144,000. Doesn't matter. Just do and do and do and do. But just know it'll never be enough. But aren't you glad that Christianity is a religion of done, done. It's not what you do. It is what he has done. Thank God for that. But, but, but notice what they said. They said, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Do you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like that they're asking for some of the power that Jesus has so that they can do stuff themselves. What works must we do? We want to work. It sounds like Simon the sorcerer. Simon, you remember Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8? He says, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. He said, I want some of that power for myself. Jesus has sent the disciples out, teams of two by two. They have performed miracles by his own power and they're asking for the same power. They're asking what, not what we do to have everlasting life, but what must we do to do the works of God that you are doing? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answers to them, this is the work of God, that he believe on him whom he has sent. The only work you can do is no work at all. It's believe. And notice he didn't say works. He said work singularly. It's not many things to do. It is one thing. He has, now get this. He has just told them that he would give them everlasting life. That's verse 27. And after he, they've been told that he would give them eternal life, their next statement is what, must, what work must we do to get it? And Jesus says the only work that you can do is to believe on him who has sent me. So the wheels are turning. Some verse 30. Then said therefore they unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see? And believe thee, what dost thou work? Now this is getting just a little bit ridiculous. Is it okay to say that? Show us a sign that we might believe. What do you think he's been doing all over Galilee? What, what do you think that was yesterday with all them loaves? And what do you think that was? Yeah, yeah, Lord, that was good. I mean, we, we had never seen anything like that before. We saw the miracle yesterday, but we need to see something more. What a challenge to God. Prove yourself on our terms. And I'll just tell you, God don't have to prove nothing to you. What? He doesn't prove anything to you. And then they, they, throw this, they, they throw this challenge out and there's something specific in mind. Look at verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, who's the fathers in the wilderness? It's Moses. It's Moses. So here's what they're doing. They're comparing what Jesus did yesterday to what Moses did in the wilderness. 
And they're doing that to diminish the miracle of Christ. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Moses gave us bread too. But it wasn't just a one-time deal. No, Moses gave us bread every day for 40 years. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to manipulate the Lord Jesus. If you want us to believe you, then you need to do something at least as great as Moses did. You gave us one meal. Moses gave it to us for 40 years. You see that? There is a problem in arguing with Jesus. You can't ever get one over on him. Time you think you got him cornered, here he comes. Look at it. Look at it, verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Very, very, I said to you, May Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. I, I love how Jesus meets them head on at every turn. Here's what he said. Moses had nothing to do with it. Moses did not give you bread in the wilderness. Moses had nothing to do with the manna. That was not a miracle of Moses. That was a miracle of God. Uh-huh. I love it. Read it again. Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. They're trying to diminish what Christ did to manipulate him into doing more. And Jesus says Moses was not as great as you think he was. Moses was great, but he didn't have anything to do with manna. All that Moses did was tell you how to go get it, tell you that it was coming, tell you how to collect it. All that he did was organize it, but Moses never created a single piece of manna. Not a bit. Then yes, right. watch this, watch this. He said, my father, my father did that. And then he said, my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. It was my father that gave your fathers that bread in the wilderness sent down from heaven. Just like my father gives you the true bread from heaven even now. And he's going to identify himself as the bread of life. But he says, I am the bread from heaven sent down to you. Just like that bread was sent down from heaven to your fathers. There is one great difference in this. All of those in the wilderness that ate manna eventually died. But the true bread from heaven is life-giving. Manna sustained them for a day, but he could not prevent death. But if you believe in me, you'll have everlasting life. It's at this point that the audience is completely lost to the words of Christ. They are so invested in earthly things, they have no spiritual perception. and They don't understand, so Jesus is going to expand upon this theme of being the bread of life. Look at verse number 32. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Amen. Bible students recognize John 6 and verse 35 was one of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven times, seven times in the Gospel of John, I am, I am. And when you read that, it harkens back to Exodus 3 where Jehovah God said, I am that I am. There's no name to describe me or to define me. So just call me, I am what I am. 
And when Jesus says, I am, He is claiming the same thing as the Father. We'll not go through these this morning, but in John 6 and verse 35, I am the bread of life. In John 8 and verse number 12, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door. In chapter 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11 and verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. Chapter 15 and verse 1, I am the true vine. And verse 35 down to verse number 40, he's going to elaborate on this claim of his to be the bread of life. We call it the bread of life discourse. Now I don't have time to get into it this morning. I've preached for 40 minutes, 35 minutes. I'm going to wind it down. But here's what I want you to think about. When you read these verses, there's a lot of repetition. A lot of repetition because he knows that the audience is not going to understand. And he's using bread as it He's not literal bread, but he's using bread as a metaphor. Actually, the figure of speech is metonym. That's when you use a word as a substitute for something else. When you get in the car and you call it your ride. Or you call your home your turf. That's, that's the figure of speech that he's using. So he's using a figure of speech to refer to himself. And notice, notice one little word. Notice one little word in verse 33. For the bread of God is he. It's not a thing, it's a person, and I am that person. And in these verses, he's going to talk about that bread. That bread. I'll give you, give you three things quickly about this bread, and I, I'm, I'm going to land the plane. But I want you to notice the divine preexistence of this bread. Look at verse 32. He says, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33. The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. Verse 38. I came down from heaven. Verse 41. They murmured because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Verse 42, how is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Every time that you read that, he is affirming that he did not have his beginning in Bethlehem. He didn't come from Nazareth. He came from heaven. And the people had a hard time believing this because they knew that he was concurring the Nazareth. They knew where he was born and where he grew up. But, but what he's saying is that he is God. He coexisted with the Father in the past. Co-equal, co-eternal, coexistence. Yes, his body was prepared for him. But as a person, he is the eternal son of God. He's from heaven. But then there's the divine purpose of the bread. He not only came from heaven, but he came on a divine mission. Go back to verse 32 again. Back to verse 32. My Father giveth you the true bread. Verse 33, the bread of God. Verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 40, this is the will of him that sent me. Verse 57, as the living Father hath sent me. So he affirms that he came from heaven, but he also affirms that the Father sent him. There is a divine mission that is agreed upon by the Godhead in eternity past and Jesus came to fulfill that mission. So you hear him say, I came to do the will of my Father. I came to fulfill all things. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to do the will of the Father. By the way, quick note back up to verse 38. He says, I came down from heaven, watch this, not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. 
So some people would read that to say, well, Jesus didn't really want to go to the cross. That wasn't really his will. He didn't really want to die on a cross for sins. So he came reluctantly. It's not what I want to do. It's what the Father wants me to do. So I'm going to do it anyway. And that's extrapolated to say that Jesus had a different will from the Father and that he could have said no to the cross. You have to make that up because all Jesus is saying is that he was not there as an independent agent. He, he, he said in chapter 5 that the Son doesn't do anything independently of the Father. He's not come to do His own thing, but to do the Father's will. And it's not that Jesus and the Father had two competing independent wills and the Father won out this time. No, He's saying that my will is not separate against His. I'm not here independently. I'm here on the Father's mission and I agree with it and I am one with Him. There's a divine purpose. But then there's a divine promise of this bread. Back up to verse 33. He says, The bread of God, or the bread of God is he which coming down from heaven, giveth life unto the world. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He says in verse 40, they may have everlasting life. Verse 47, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 50, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Verse 51, treat the bread that I will give us my, he says, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Verse 53, except ye eat this flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Verse 54, he hath ever eternal life. Verse 58, shall live forever. Eternal life in a mortal body. We're joined to Christ in salvation, so His life is given to us. We live because He lives. We live as long as He lives. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that? Do, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that when your body, if you're saved, that when your body is laid in the grave, that it will be raised up a new body and that you will spend eternity as a real person in God's heaven. I know that death is a fearful thing. Death is the ultimate enemy and you have no power over it. But death is a defeated foe. Jesus broke the power of sin, death, and hell on the cross. And He came out and He took the sting out of death and victory out of the grave. And I know I know that our mortal minds fear the unknown. And I know that our, when we're faced with our own mortality, that we face it with anxiety. I understand that. I have not faced it yet. And I honestly don't know how I will do. But Jesus gave us the promise that if you believe on me, I will give you everlasting life. There is a Life that is far greater than this one where you are going. God ought to give us some kind of hope and some kind of confidence in the trials of life. We understand it's a metaphor. Jesus is not literal bread. He's drawing a comparison to himself. They brought up manna. And Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. I am the true bread from heaven. Think about that. Think about that. I'm, I'm done. Anna, come so I'll know, so I'll know to quit. Think about that. Here's what he said. He said, I am the bread of life. And somebody says, well, bread is just euphemism for food. Well, if that's the case, he could have said anything. He could have said, I'm an apple. I am 
broccoli. Chocolate pie. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm not trying to be crass. But he said bread for a reason. Specifically. He didn't say I'm the apple of life. He said I am the bread of life. And there was a reason why. When you think about bread, how that bread is a food that is sufficient to the world. I've been to the poorest countries in the world, but I've never been to a place where they were so poor that they didn't have bread. They didn't have steak and lobster, but they had bread. In the dusty village in Romania, every morning that old lady would walk down the street and she would deliver bread to every house. That's all that they had, but they did have bread. Anywhere you go in the world, you will find people eating bread. There is enough bread made every day around the world to feed the entire world if you can just get it to them. Glenn Kelly comes in here every Wednesday and every Sunday with bread from Publix and wherever else, and we can't give it away. Please, after the service, go get some. There's piles and piles and piles of bread. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is sufficient for the whole world. There's enough for Jesus for the whole world if you can just get him to them. It is a food that is sufficient for the world. It is a food that is suitable for the world. There are some people that can't eat sweets. There are some people that can't eat meat. I don't know anybody that can't eat bread. You may be on a special diet and you have to have your bread made special kind and no gluten and whatever it might be. But bread can be made in so many ways that everybody can eat bread. There's, there's people in this world that would have starved to death had they not had bread. The richest man in the world will probably have a little bread with his meal today. The poorest man in the world might have a little bread. Doesn't matter where you are, bread is suitable. And I'll tell you something about bread. It is a food that is satisfying to the world. You ever been to a really nice restaurant and they bring out the bread? The cheddar biscuits at Red Lobster? Yeah, yeah, those, those, those coarsened rolls at cheddars that just melt in your face and they're dripping with that juice. You ever had that? Or you go to, go to Olive Garden or, or, or Carabas where you slice that warm bread and you put that butter. I tell, you, I tell you, if you're not careful, you can just fill up on bread. And we ought to find Jesus so satisfying that I could just feast on Him and it ruined my appetite for anything else. You may not get a ribeye today, but you can get some bread. And Jesus said that if you eat of me, I'll give you everlasting life. And you will never hunger again. He's the bread of life. Now this conversation is going to get much deeper. He's going to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And the Catholics, they have totally missed, they've perverted the words of the Lord. 
But he's simply talking about taking a piece of bread and receiving it and eating it and having it fill you up. I have tasted the sweet bread of heaven and it is satisfying to my soul. I do not know yet what is for lunch, but I'm probably going to have a little bread with it. But no physical bread is as sweet to my soul as the taste of Jesus in my heart. Heavenly Father.